Welcome to episode 133 of Telepractice Today with Kim Dutro-Allen and Dr. Todd Houston. Hey, welcome back to another episode. Uh, I am without Todd for the first time in our 130-plus episodes. So luckily, I have Michelle Boisvert with me today as a co-host who's been on the podcast before, been a co-host before when I was gone. So welcome, Michelle. Thank you. Thank you so much for letting me join you guys this Telepractice Today is always an amazing resource of telepractice tips and tricks, so I'm happy to be here. Great, and we are happy to have you. And I have to say, um, I've been sharing kind of more like resources on repeat instead of telepractice tips, because I've you know, sometimes I run out <laughs> tips to do on telepractice. And I promise I'm not just saying this because you're here, but Easy Report Pro is one of mine. <laughs> I've had so many, like, I can't even tell you how many times this particular school year I have gotten a call or email that was like, we forgot to tell you that we have an IEP on Friday <laughs> and it's Monday and we need you to test this kid and have a report ready by Friday. So many times this year that has happened. And I even, uh, this is my big plug for you, is I even have access to one of the big publishers online platform that will do things like plug your information into paragraph form. Mm -hmm. And I like your descriptions better. Thank you. There are times when I'm like, no, I'm going to use, I'm going to use the one from Easy Report Pro. So that's my plug for that. Awesome. Yes. It's so helpful.com. Yes, yes. Thanks. So my other one that I've used this week, and I don't often buy physical materials for telepractice. It's been a uh, long time, it, especially unless it's like, you know, computer or tech related. But I have been watching um, these resources help so many kids. It is the Bjorum speech cards. And they just recently came out with a big version of them. So they're like a five by five card instead of a small yeah. card. And that was my Black Friday Christmas shopping to myself and my business <laughs> was getting that. Those are awesome. And I don't know if you saw them at ASHA. I did. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yep. And oh, that's great. Yep. And that would be my suggestion if you are going to use them in telepractice is to get the big ones so your kids can see them easy on the screen. You can always, you know, scan them in and screen share them as well. But I think it's so powerful to have them up right next to your mouth. So they're getting that the visual cue of what your mouth looks like along with the speech cards. And it is one of those things like I feel like there's a lot of materials with, um, you know, speech to pathology in general, that we're like, we have the knowledge that we could create that ourselves. But if you don't have to, right. <laughs> then go ahead and get these. And I've, I just have used them this week. And I already had one student that her accuracy on that, that F sound that we were having such a hard time with it, her accuracy, like took off just from using these speech cards that it oh. just like made sense to her. It it solidified, made it concrete what sound she was supposed to make and what she was doing instead. That's so that's awesome. my other my other resource that I think, you know, people should look into if um if that's something that they feel like would be helpful for them. 
That's great. I'm going to check them out. Yeah. Yeah. I like them. Uh, so today we have Amy Reed and she uh, presented at ASHA, did a, um, a great uh, masterclass um, with some of her colleagues there. And so we are excited to hear about her and what she's doing and some of her tips. She has so many great tips and we're excited for you to hear about them. Yes, I know. It's, she had, she's a wealth of information for sure. And it's, it's exciting to learn from her. Okay. We want to welcome Amy Reed to the podcast. Amy, uh, tell us a bit about your background, about how you got into speech pathology in general, and then um, telepractice as well. So speech pathology in general, honestly, it was really systematic exploring different careers and kind of coming to this. I knew I wanted to do something to do with education, um, but I decided I didn't want to manage a whole classroom. (laughs) So that's how I landed there. And in terms of telepractice, I became really interested in it very early on. My last semester in graduate school, I had Mike Tui as my voice um, instructor. And he's extremely passionate about telepractice, uh, has been a huge champion for it um, within the field to begin with. And that became really apparent during voice where he actually shared a lot about telepractice during he found a way to make the voice course um, somewhat about that. And I just thought it was so cool what they were doing at Waldo County General Hospital. And I wanted to be a part of it. Um, So I was really fortunate that Mike hired me on and I was able to get involved kind of right from the get go. I had just really great opportunities. Uh, Nathan Curtis was my CF supervisor, and he's just so masterful at sharing his knowledge and working to lift other people up by providing them with opportunities. So that's what he did. He and Mike both did that for me. So right from the get-go, I was involved in trainings with universities. Nathan and I flew to Ohio State University. We did some work at the University of Maine. Um, I was able to get involved in our training program, and after just a couple of years, I was one of the lead instructors in that. Um, so currently, I am working full-time telepractice. I did that kind of as soon as I was able, saw the opportunity, and I work with school-age students, um, which I've found it feels like my sweet spot is working at the elementary level. And I work at a single school and I have a dedicated ed tech at that school to serve as my e-helper. So I'm just, it's it's kind of a dream situation right now. Yeah. Shout out to Shannon Higley. She's my uh, e-helper and she's, we just have such an amazing um, team going where, where you know, she she is what I think makes my job so easy and enjoyable right now is her kind of problem solving skills and making everything flow. Yeah. This is, is the first year that I've had a dedicated e-helper. So usually I'm like pulling from, I mean, it's been everything from no one to like the librarian to the music teacher. <laughs> so yeah, I, what a difference. A difference. Yep. And, you know, collaborating 
texting her while I'm at Asha saying, oh, I saw this cool thing that we should try on Monday. Yes. Back. So yeah, that does oh, make a huge difference. I love that. Yes. And especially like if you're able to sustain that for years too. Like I think yeah. Shannon and I have been working together for five years. So now it's like wow. just the communication is so great. And of, of course you kind of have to have somebody who just gets it to begin with, <laughs> but, but that, that's and- great. Also, so how does that also help with carrying over skills, transferring, know what's, knowing what's going on in the classroom? Like that rapport and relationship has got to just amplify what you're able to do in therapy and then what the students are able to do outside of therapy. I think that's huge. Yeah. And my colleagues had looked at this when they were tracking noms years ago, how, um, they were finding that students in telepractice were actually making greater gains than in person. And we definitely attributed it to that e-helper, that person who's there in the environment, um, especially if they're like a one-to-one with that student. Mm-hmm. But even in the case of Shannon, where she's sort of the face of speech at the school, you know, she's at recess duty. She's walking the hallways. The kids see her. They remember she's able to report back what they're doing in the classroom, observations, things like that. So it's really huge. And I think having that e-helper presence within the school, if it's somebody who um, is approachable and the face and sort of humanizes the telespeech, that's really important as well. Because when we're working in a school, we can establish that over time. You know, it's really important Mm -hmm. that we maintain the role of being the professional and that we're the one um, providing all that clinical information. But at the same time, sometimes it takes sort of that person, that friendly face to, to develop those relationships over time, because it does take time. And I think that's true if you're in person as well. Um, so yeah, right. for sure. I think that brings up, that's such an awesome point. So for people who, for telepractitioners who maybe are just starting to work with an e-helper or who don't have a consistent e-helper to rely on, are there any, like, these are the top three tips or tricks that you would recommend? Like, Yeah, I think that's a good question. That's a question that I heard over and over again doing telepractice trainings is like, how do you train e-helpers? What skills do they need? And in thinking about it, our approach is what it really comes down to is like differentiating instruction. So a lot of times, most of the time, we don't handpick our e-helpers. So what we set out to do, and I think Todd mentioned this and part of why he asked me to be on, is that what we did is we set out to identify common sort of character types that we encounter in order to help us better understand why different e-helpers are interacting in the way that they are and what we can do to capitalize on their strengths and needs via coaching. So taking that approach, we don't provide like a specific training going in. It's more coaching within sessions and building that relationship as time goes on. So like, for example, there's there's different types. So the quiet observer, the rescuer, the interrupter, the saboteur, and the swimmer. <laughs> and um, the 
I try to think about character insight with with each of these types because it, it it simplifies the ways that people are, and really, it's much more complicated in general. Almost everyone, there's some exceptions. We all know they're out there, but almost everyone wants speech to succeed. They want to do the right thing. They want to support in the right way. It just comes down to uh, their frame of reference and what they think we need from them. So Mm -hmm. in the case of like a quiet observer, this is kind of historically how Asha um, sort of described the facilitator. Things have evolved a lot, but as just somebody who comes, brings the student and then sort of stays out of your way. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in this case, people believe that they're doing the right thing, you know, and they might lack understanding of, like you mentioned, Michelle, the, the power that they can have in terms of carryover. Um, so in cases like that, I have specific strategies, like explicitly including them in conversation, um, granting temporary clinician or client status so that might just be asking them to turn a page just to kind of break down that barrier and gain ease of comfort. Um, a similar type is the rescuer and that's, uh, a parent kind of comes to mind sometimes for this, you know, they add additional prompting, things like that. So we might just want to ask the right questions to bring up any anxieties they might have, um, eliminate the need for perfection. I think once people understand that speech is, speech and language therapy is like a learning process versus a test, right? that can change the dynamic. Yeah. And that's also a good reminder, like for as an SLP. (laughs) I I noticed that too, like catching myself when am I, am I teaching or am I just testing? Am I just trying to get those data points or am I trying to help them learn this? Exactly. And that's why when I think about materials, sometimes materials can do that to me, right? Like if you have a specific material, you get so focused on going through the material that you, you can lose sight of that. So I like to think about that in terms of materials too. keep keeping that in mind right um yeah that's that's awesome so yeah when you think about materials so i and i are there certain types of materials that you would recommend so i kind of consider myself a telepractic minimalist and <laughs> I um <laughs> I yeah I kind of pride myself on that um back in I think it was 2018 or 2019 I actually did a Asher presentation on um it was like a spin-off of Marie Kondo's uh like <laughs> reduce teletherapy clutter and spark yeah. student progress. Yeah. <laughs> so in terms, like I try to be guided by clinical clarity. So what is it I'm trying to accomplish? And then the materials can follow that. And so, yeah, I've just tried to focus on that. So I don't use a ton of materials. Like my favorite materials are books. So I use things like Epic Books. I love using videos. So there's a couple series like Patchwork Pals, Animanimals. 
which I like to use for narrative because I feel like narrative um, intervention is like the ultimate methodology for minimalism. Right. Right. Because you can do the macro structure, you could do micro structure. And and context too, right? That contextual intervention. Yeah. Exactly. And then in terms of like working on speech sound disorders, I I like to start with sort of high frequency words that are specific to the student. Of course, I also use some other materials because sometimes you just you just need those words. You just need to get them in. Mm-hmm. But um, ideally, I try to also just be guided by the individual needs as well and generate targets that way. Yeah, I love those ideas. I just had a friend who I'm trying to talk her into telepractice. She's like, I kind of want to start my own private practice. I was like, you have to do telepractice with it. It's just, it works so well together. And she just messaged me last night and was like, but how much money am I going to have to spend on getting this started on, you know, finding all these things? And I was like, very minimal. And I think it's a lot more minimal than a brick and mortar too, that, you know, when you're thinking about the things that you have to start and the things that you have to collect and have on hand. Um, Because one of them is that our kids are at home. They have all of their stuff anyways. (laughs) They just need to go grab it. Or they're at school where they have things as well. I completely agree, Kim. Like, I think telepractice is just the ultimate way, the ultimate path to efficiency and minimalism. And like, they go hand in hand and just, I, I totally agree with what you're saying. Yeah. So I was thinking about how you kind of came into the field already doing telepractice from the start. How do you think that's changed like your perspective or what do you see as the difference between, you know, someone who always thought of telepractice and speech therapy going together versus the people who had to jump into it later? That's a good question. Well, so even though I was fortunate to have Mike Tui as my voice instructor who also folded this in, I really didn't have any telepractice training or experience in graduate school. So it was a whole shift. Um, I guess I would say um, the difference in perspective, though, I'm often um, collaborating with Nathan or kind of seeking out his experience because he had so much experience actually being a brick and mortar SLP. So I definitely am aware that I have certain gaps in my experience and knowledge about what it's like to actually be like physically within that school culture. So for me, I, it's just kind of a constant awareness that that's a gap for me and finding ways to fill that in, whether that's through site visits, whether that's being really frank about what I don't know, like with my e-helper and my teachers and my principal and seeking that out. Um, But that's kind of something I'm always working and striving toward filling in that lack of experience. Mm -hmm. I like how you describe that. That's um, not that unsimilar from me too. I kind of went from early intervention and very minimal in-school experience to working in telepractice. Uh, So I've experienced that as well in some like, I don't know, even following the schools that I work at on Facebook and social media has helped kind of get that, like that feeling of being in the school culture more. Yeah. And that rapport. 
Yeah. It's so yeah. much of our job has to do with building relationships mm-hmm. and thinking about how we can do that when you're not physically at the school is fascinating. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. And it's even little things like one of my students, every Thursday is pizza day at their school. And one of my students, every single time is going to tell me that he had pizza today <laughs> and that it's pizza day <laughs> and how the pizza was and everything like that. So, and like, it's like school spirit day on Fridays too. So they wear school colors. So just like little things like that, where I'm like, Oh, I know, I know I need to ask this student about his pizza today or mention that he was wearing the school colors, little things like that. I think too. Yes. Yeah. That's so, great. What do you think are some <laughs> common myths that are still out there about telepractice? Common myths. Well, I would say it might not be telepractice specific, but I do think telepractice amplifies it so that we have to be entertainers. Um, And I think with all the fancy things you can do with telepractice, I think people are doing wonderful things um, and really engaging things and high tech type things. It's just not necessarily something that everybody has to do. Like you, you won't see me with a green screen and that's okay. And I think that takes time to kind of remember, okay, what is it that we're really trying to accomplish? And some people can accomplish that in really exciting, entertaining ways. Um, But I think that there's a lot of value in also just teaching um, students to value the process of learning. And of course, I'm speaking to a specific age range. So it's going to be very different if you're working with preschoolers. Mm -hmm. Um, But I would say that's a common or sort of like a pervasive thing. And I think that might be what scares some people away from telepractice as well is Mm -hmm. sort of seeing kind of the the glitz and glamour of all the cool things you can do. And um, yeah, sometimes you can lose track that it's really just teaching skills. Right. How about, have you had to overcome any like tech glitches that come up or do you find um, like when you first are working with a team or working with a teacher, like how do you get them to accept telepractice as a really valid method of service delivery? I think it takes, it goes back right to what you said, Michelle, about so much is about building relationships. So you might not get that trust immediately with every Mm -hmm. site and some sites might be resistant for a long time. And, um, but, but yeah, I think it's just kind of about getting enough buy-in for people to, to let it unfold. Right. To get started. Yeah. That's why I had a parent in an IEP meeting that was really concerned about the turnover that they've had in speech language pathologists at the school. And I think that there was a perception that the telepractice was part of that and, and breaking those down, letting him know like, Hey, this, the reasons that this works well is because if I move, which I have, I've moved during telepractice and kept all of my students and kids. If I move, I'm still with you guys. You know, if I, and um, things like we have a platform where I have all of the notes from previous um, 
providers and things like that. So I think that, you know, addressing their concerns and having, and he was kind of nervous to bring this up in the meeting, but I think having those frank conversations of like, what are your concerns? What are you worried about in, in with this method are really helpful. Yes, yes exactly. Finding out what it really is. And, and you're right. When something goes wrong in telepractice, it's, it's always the technology to blame versus, right. you know, if something's in person, then it's, yeah, it's right. an interesting dynamic. But I wonder if that will evolve as well with so many people doing it. So many more people have experienced or know somebody who's had somebody who's had telepractice. So I, yep. I wonder if that will. I imagine I, it will. Yeah, I do have to say I feel a lot less nervous about parents' reactions to me joining online to an IEP and being like, oh, this is the only way I see your child. I am a lot less nervous about that post 2020. (laughs) Yes. So COVID was the great equalizer. And actually, (laughs) I feel like I made major gains in my relationships with like teachers and the principal and everyone at the school that I'm at, because it wasn't just me not being able to like read the room. We were all in the Zoom meeting. (laughs) I know there were some, there were some like team members that it was the first time I had seen their face because they would always point the camera and the laptop towards the parents in an IE meeting. And when we all had to join via Zoom, I was like, oh, that's what you look like. (laughs) Yeah, that, those meetings are tough without all that nonverbal information, but you're right. It's rare now that I'm the only one on Zoom. So, so I have to ask, so obviously you have a lot of experience working with um, school-aged students. And one of the big questions that I often get asked when I do telepractice is how do you address behavior, attendance, like scheduling conflicts. Um, how do you, yeah, how do you- All those extra things those, that are right. just sitting in front of the kid and doing therapy. Yeah, so that's a good question too. Um, so since I have that dedicated e-helper mm-hmm. and I'm at a single school, which hasn't always been my experience, so there are major challenges that come with being at multiple sites in terms of what you're asking, I think. But I just try to maintain as much flexibility as possible. And so if there's a behavioral challenge or if students are absent, I try to fit them in on a different day. And I know that sounds Mm -hmm. basic, but it takes a lot of organization on my part to be able to do it. So I have the specials color coded. I have the students grade color coded. So it just makes it easier to like look for those opportunities. If there are students that have really high rates of absences, I put them in a group because Mm -hmm. even if, yeah, even if their goals don't align, I typically don't do groups where the goals don't align, but even if their goals don't align, we know that they're going to be absent so much that they're going to get individualized attention. So that's a way that I deal with that. And that, that seems to really reduce the time kind of wasted and be able to maximize things that way. Yeah. And I like those um, ideas that you had where you do have like 
the schedule and know when the specials are and things like that. I think a lot of times I've just been reliant on my e-helper, which can work too, depending on, but just that taking that ownership of, oh, I know when these classes are and when everything is. And so I can, you know, add to the conversation about when we can reschedule and when we can put these kids Mm -hmm. in. Got to color code your grades. <laughs> I only just started doing that. And now I can so much because the specials, you know, you'll just pull your hair out trying to figure it, it out. I was yes. going to say, if you use SLP toolkit, this is not sponsored, but they have an option for that. And that's made some of my scheduling things a lot. Nice. <laughs> well, anything yeah. else that you want to share with us about telepractice, about what you've learned, what you're hoping others will learn? Um, A lot of my current focus has just been on trying to maximize efficiency because what's always been uncomfortable. Sorry, that's Michelle's favorite topic. (laughs) (laughs) Well, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) It's always... Um, speech and language therapy is so uncomfortable for me if I don't know like exactly what I'm accomplishing because I take it so seriously that I'm taking students out of academic time mm-hmm. in order to provide the service. So recently I've just really been, you know, looking at is there evidence to support reduced times, which there is in a lot of cases, yes. um, kind of you know, talking about that entertaining versus like, are we actually working? If you cut out that entertaining, you can see a student for 15 minutes versus 30 minutes. And you know what? They're probably going to be more focused and uh, in my experience and get just as many targets in um, because we know like the the dose of targets is the important part. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that's really been kind of my focus is looking at those types of things. And it's exciting to me. So I guess I'm in good company. (laughs) That's awesome. And are you finding it shift your like recommendations in terms of service delivery or even goals and objectives? I think both both. Um, all of the above, (laughs) um, except maybe I, so yes, um, I'm definitely looking more at the time spent, but also at the goals chosen and really trying to consider, like, is this something that's better suited being targeted in the classroom? Is it already being targeted in the classroom? And a lot of times when I answer those questions, you really can kind of chisel it down. And I find that the teachers value when time can be re- can be appropriately re- reduced based mm-hmm. on you know, of course, evidence-based practice, because it's, it's really helpful for them when their students don't miss an entire academic period. Right. Um, So I think overall, you know, in certain situations, the students are going to make more progress that way. You had, I forget what your other part of that, Michelle, was. Or even as you're talking, I'm thinking like, even if we look really closely at the types of objectives that we are writing, um, ensuring that they're most the most functional and relevant to our like field of domain and the and then the way we collect data. Yes. Oh, right. Data. Um. So data. 
And I'm always, I'm, this is a work in progress, right? But right now my philosophy on the data is just because I'm setting, so because I've been reducing time, I'm also setting higher standards for what mm-hmm. happens within a session. Cause I think that's really important that I'm able to communicate why I'm doing it and what I will accomplish within a session. Yeah. Um, so just because I'm doing that doesn't mean that I'm complicating my data more. So just some tricks that I've been using is to like, if you have a certain number of trials or something that you're tracking, take data on like the first 10. So if I'm using speech as an example, I might get the first 10 unmodeled, unprompted, uncued (laughs) and get data on that, then do all the practice and then get the last 10. Um, So that's, but I'm definitely open to ideas if you're a big efficiency person too. Curious how you're approaching that. Well, I love that idea of um, kind of releasing ourselves from having to take data throughout the duration of the therapy session. And a lot of SLPs and SLPAs that I work with, um, we get all stressed out because we feel like data has to be collected all the time. And so identifying specific either activities or if it's the first five minutes, the last five minutes, that's when we're collecting um, data to kind of drive our decisions in terms of is this therapy working or, um, you know, how we're reporting or measuring progress, finding more efficient ways to do that and kind of take the stress off of ourselves so we can enjoy our job and enjoy interacting with our students instead of like, check mark, check, you know, check mark with verbal right. um, is a huge deal and a huge, that is a great idea. Yeah. It's, and I think it's important too, to be able yeah. to respond to what's in front of us, that our mind is free of that for yes. at least a period of time. Right. <laughs> it's so hard. Cause I feel like a lot of the times, like we know how our kids are doing. We just, we know that we, but we also know that we need to document it. So someone else knows if they look at it. So that's always my balance of like, I can just be in here and do this activity. And I know, and I know the things you got wrong and I was correcting the things that you got wrong, but mm-hmm. I still need to show that you're getting better. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I find with speech, which is a lot of, I'm doing 15 minute sessions. So, and that would be mostly for students with just speech. Um, Mm -hmm. So I actually find with some of these students telling them about the data, like, so, hey, last time you got six out of these 10, like how many do you think you can get today? And then comparing it and i I think it's really driving progress for them to be aware of that. That won't speak to all students, um, but for some of them, it's it's really motivating. Yeah, yeah. When you're talking about being making sure you're being efficient with your time in a session, what do you do for planning sessions? Do you have any tips and tricks of how you like get ready for the, your day? <laughs> yeah, so... Usually I will map out my schedule. So I have a schedule um, and usually Monday's the schedule that I'm actually planning it to be. But every other day of the week is what students were absent the previous day. And maybe if I found out that there's an assembly on Thursday. So I kind of map it out and send it to my e-helper. Um 
she'll often have other information that she's come upon, which will alter the schedule. But then I just kind of go through the chart of each student and I see what they did last time. And I just jot down um, clinically what I want to target. Mm -hmm. I don't necessarily do a lot of planning in terms of materials. I, you know, as long as, yeah, as long as I know what it is I want to target, that's pretty easy. Yeah. Yeah. That part's the easy part. So I'm not a huge planner, but I do want to make sure that I can have clarity about what I'm targeting clinically. So I just kind of jot that down for every student. And that might change, of course. We know plans can change. but yeah. Yeah. Right. And do you have, like you mentioned Epic books, like, you know, your material, like I'm sure like on Epic there, I mean, there are books from pre-K all the way, I think up to age 12. Um, so it's like knowing your material sources, I'm sure you could like pull anything and make yeah. it work for a therapy session. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think that being minimal about them lets you know the ones that you have better. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Great. Well, awesome. Well, I know you've been looking forward to this part, Amy. <laughs> um, we have our moment of Zen, even with Todd gone, we have our moment of Zen. So I want you to pick whether you would like list A, list B, or list C. I'll just go with A. Okay. Okay. List A. What is the most used app on your phone? Spotify. Spotify. Is it for music or podcasts? Um, music. music. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Great. Uh, what was the last TV show or movie that you streamed? It was Wednesday on Netflix. Oh, I've heard. Yeah. About it's Tim yeah. Burton. It's, you know, not even talking about the storyline just the visual appeal of watching it was really fun yep it's on my list I heard a lot of people were um shocked and surprised that the original Wednesday Christina Ricci was in it (laughs) and I was like you people don't know that that's the original Wednesday (laughs) (laughs) I love that okay uh what is a favorite book okay this is tricky I I should have a planned answer for this, um, but I think it's always evolving. So I'll go with the probably my favorite that I read within the past few months, and that would be um, Patricia Lockwood. No one's talking about this. It's kind of written in sort of a stream of consciousness, like the way that we experience social media feeds, oh, wow. and it it like juxtaposes that online world and what happens in there with sort of the narrator's real life and the real pain and the real love and just this, the real world and how that is so different than kind of our experience within the online world. I think I'll be thinking, I'll, I'll want to reread that one. Yeah. Uh, let's see if you could create one law or behavior that everyone had to do, what would it be? 
If you're going to habitually complain about something, then you should be willing to do something or at least speak out about it. And I'm not talking about venting. We all have to vent, but that like would be chronic it. complaining. Like, I, yeah. Those who and, chronically complain should do something. Yeah. Better. And I just, I like, I feel like people should be willing to share their opinions, you know, broadly. <laughs> you have to talk to the person that you're talking yeah. about <laughs> rather than talking, <laughs> talking about them. You have to talk to them. I like it. Uh, let's see. Um, who would you like to have dinner with, dead or alive? My nephews, Charlie and Sam. Um, let's see. What was the scariest thing you've ever done? Been a teenager. That that frontal lobe. (laughs) That frontal lobe. (laughs) (laughs) Is that? I think that's why. Like my recurring nightmare is going back to high school. (laughs) (laughs) Like I I wake up one day. Like yep, yep. It's a recurring nightmare where they're like, "Kim, you missed a credit," and I'm sitting there arguing with them. Like I have a master's degree. You can't make me go back to high school. And they're like, "Nope, you missed a credit. You have to go back." Oh, yeah, for me, it's definitely a math credit. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Where is the most exotic or farthest place that you've been? Oof. Look, I'm a millennial. I recently paid off my loans and then the <laughs> pandemic hit. So it's not that exciting. Um, I've been to, let's see, Mexico, Ireland, and Canada. Those are fun. That's great. <laughs> Not nowhere, you know, that's fun. Uh, let's see. If you didn't choose your current profession, what would you like to try? Hmm. Well, within the field, I have loved being involved in training and things like that so much that I feel like I would love to do like clinical supervision or support student clinicians at, in a university setting somehow. Right. You can do it. Yeah. It's, not, it's never too late for anything. <laughs> it's, it's on my it's on my list too at some point. Yeah. yeah. Uh let's see. What is a pet peeve that you have? Well, I told Todd it was these questions. <laughs> <laughs> um platitudes. Okay. And then our final question that we ask everybody, if heaven exists, what do you want? to hear God say when you enter the pearly gates? Um, I think it would be funny if he just said, psych. <laughs> <laughs> I like it. I like it. No, I don't think you're going to hear that, but I like it. <laughs> well, thank you for coming on with us today. Um, how can people reach out to you if they want to get some training or learn more or just ask you a question? Emails best for me, amy.read at mainhealth.org. And I definitely welcome that. Great. Great. Well, thank you for being on with us today. Thank you so much for having me. I want to thank Amy Reed for joining us on the podcast and I just want to salute what she's been doing there at um, Waldo County General Hospital and Nathan Curtis and so many others who've done such a wonderful job uh, really moving the practice of telepractice forward, moving this whole approach forward. And 
and uh, the presentations that they've been giving and the trainings, I just uh, really salute everything that they're doing and, and really appreciate what they mean to this field. And with that, um, we also appreciate you listening to this podcast, and we want you, if you don't mind, to leave us a five-star review that helps us to reach new people and to get some new subscribers, which is what we want. And so, if you can do that, that would be great. Until next week, be safe and be kind. This has been a production of the 3C Digital Media Network.